This week's TribCast is sponsored by... ConResnick combines extensive technical capabilities with compliance and risk management focus to deliver on-time, on-budget, on-mission. For more info, visit conresnick.com slash Texas. And Lone Star College plays a key role in developing a skilled workforce to keep the Texas economy strong. Find out more at lonestar.edu. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for June 17th, 2022. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Tribune. And this week we are talking with Abby Livingston, our DC Bureau Chief. Hey, Abby. Hey, guys. Hey, and um, our special guest from the investigative news outlet Reveal, Cassandra Jaramillo. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. So... This week, we had um, a few interesting political developments, including a special election in uh, District 34 for the U.S. House in South Texas, which, depending on your perspective, is a major sign of a growing kind of political earthquake in Texas or a kind of meaningless fluke that will have like no broader Texas or national political implications. What happened here is that a Democratic held seat, um, previously held by Philemon Vela, um, a Democrat in South Texas, was won in a special election outright by Myra Flores, a Republican who um, was born in Mexico, who is married to a, um, a, a Border Patrol agent, and who basically flipped a seat that has been democratically held for a very long time. Abby, you, you, you know, you're our congressional campaign experts. How big of a deal should we be making of this race? Well, it's a big deal and it's not a big deal. It is a big deal because of what you just said. This was a race that has not even been on the radar uh, for us until 2020 when Democrats underperformed in South Texas. So yes, it is a big deal whenever a seat flips, but this is potentially a very brief term in Congress and Democrats uh, in, in the state party and in Washington made the decision that uh, they did not want to spend a great deal of money on this seat when the lines were going to change and get better for Democrats in the fall. Um, there is also one historical add to it. She's the first uh, Latina Republican woman from Texas. Um, but just generally, it, um, it, this is not good for Democrats, but I don't think it's the catastrophe that I have seen other special elections uh, be as like arbiters when the parties both go, go all in. The, the value of specials at the national level is to test messaging, to try things out, to, to, to see which way the winds were blowing. But Democrats here made a decision not to compete on a financial level, but that's also a warning sign. One of the reasons they're doing that is to save money for the fall because they know they're going to need it and things are going to get tough. So it, it's, um, it's a big deal but it's also, she could be in Congress for just a few months, but she will come into this race against Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, who um, 
was narrowly drawn into the district and has represented a completely different but neighboring district. Um, she comes into it as an incumbent. This is a member versus member race. Uh, the, you know, uh, when the committees are deciding how to spend money in the fall, incumbents take precedent over challengers. Um, she, you know, there are, there are lobbyists and PACs that only donate to sitting members of Congress. They don't re uh, donate to, to challengers. So she is in a much more empowered position than she would have been uh, had this been just a normal race. Um, so it, it means a lot, but it also doesn't mean uh, too much in the here and now. Yeah, so, you know, the, the Vicente Gonzalez piece of this is important, right? Because of course he could not run in this special election because he would have then had to resign the seat that he is currently in and, and you know, created a kind of another little ripple effect there. So that left, you know, a, you know, there wasn't a big incentive for Democrats to get into this exactly. race in the first place because you're only really serving for a few months. But then also what we're talking about here is, you know, a, a sort of almost complete lack of national party support in this race. So you didn't see this kind of contested in the way you will see the November race contested. On top of that, right, is redistricting. And this was this was a race for the old district that was drawn, which I believe um biden won by four percent in 2020 the new district boundaries will boundaries will be slightly more democratic in 2022 uh, i believe it's a plus seven biden district and so maybe a little bit abby on the reach side for republicans uh in, in texas this time around would you say well um yes but that could be just i mean given president biden's polling this could be in play when it's a seven point, you know, Biden district. Um, these, this is how bad it could get. And what's also not great for Democrats is these media markets overlap because there's three districts that line up Henry Cuellar's Laredo district, um, which we assume he'll be the nominee. Um, and then the middle 15th, which is now an open seat race because Gonzalez is vacating that one to run in the 34th and then the 34th. And you can very easily move TV advertisements around. Like if you if you're a party and you, you're the Republicans and you've bought a whole bunch of Rio Grande Valley TV time and you maybe put one race to bed, you can just switch the ads to another race and not even have to change your media buy. So this is these these races can get very complicated. And, um, you know, the parties are not obligated to spend on races. So the Democrats made a decision. Um, and, and so um, but it's such an indicator of the potential scarcity of resources that could be coming to Democrats in the fall. And this might be an example of it. Yeah, for sure. You know, and then there's just the broader question of, of Republicans in South Texas. And of course, this kind of helps boost the case that they are trying to make to voters that they are the ascendant party in, in parts of South Texas. You know, the, the, there are still more Democrats representing you know voters in south texas than republicans but that those gaps have narrowed and i mean four years ago it would have seemed unimaginable that a, a republican would have won this seat so so certainly an interesting kind of continued trend there even if this particular election might not mean a ton for the future in terms of representation there as well the other thing that i think is just kind of fascinating about this is abby i wonder whether republicans who drew these lines uh, in the 2021 election would maybe if secretly wish for a do-over, of course, you know, the districts that they made 
more democratic were Henry Cuellar's district. He has since been raided by the, had his home raided by the FBI. And this district, which is now, you know, about to be for a short period of time held by a Republican, it, you know, they were seeming to be strategic trying to create a Republican district in South Texas and moving some Democratic voters into these districts, but they might have been able to have an opportunity to be more aggressive down here, it seems like. Well, I think there's two things here. Um, uh, one, the Republican mentality in congressional redistricting in Texas was not that aggressive. They, I mean, they, it was very much geared toward incumbent protection and picking up one or two seats in South Texas. The other thing is, and I only say this with speculation, I have absolutely no sources validating this or um, uh, you know, planting seeds in my ear. Henry Cuellar is extremely uh, popular among Republicans, um, mm -hmm. Republicans in Congress and Republicans in the state legislature. So when I saw his district got boosted, again, no one told me this. Um, I, I kind of deduced, I, I, one thing about redistricting having gone through a previous round of this is never underestimate the influence of personal relationships as they draw these lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, Abby, uh, another kind of congressional topic that I wanted to bring up was last weekend's framework announced by Cornyn and other members of the U.S. Senate, John Cornyn, of course, Texas's uh, senior U.S. Senator, uh, related to some gun and mental health legislation in the aftermath of the Uvalde shooting. Tell us a little bit about that framework and tell us about whether the confidence level and the ability to get that framework through the US Congress has changed from the, that past weekend to now heading into the next weekend. Well, it was released on a Sunday, which I interpreted to mean that they were trying to keep momentum going. And I think it's fair to say momentum has slowed down drastically in the last few days. Um, but I think Cornyn, it's it's the um, the old American pie use of the nursery rhyme, Jack be nimble, Jack be quick. He is all over the Capitol. He is seeing, you know, engaging with members of both parties. He's texting, he's emailing, he's calling. Um, and I think the, the main thing is he's taking enormous political risk. He's not up for reelection for um, until 2026, but he is a potential future majority leader. And this is really a demonstration of his negotiating skills and his ability to whip a vote. With regard to the actual policy, this is a very, very measured piece of legislation. But even so, it has, uh, you know, I talked to um, in a profile that we're going to run pretty soon, um, a, a very powerful Republican senator from Alabama named Richard Shelby, who basically said, uh, you know, there's a lot of senators who aren't buying what he's selling on the Republican side. Democrats will take almost anything. Um, I, the, they're, they've been disappointed so many times that I, I think that their ambitions of going big are extremely mitigated. They might grouse, you know, if this gets to the floor, um, they might, you know, grouse about it. But I think that there will be pretty, I, it would surprise me if any Democrats vote against it. Do you, how much of a risk do you think Cornyn is taking by putting himself out there as kind of the leader of this measure? I was I was just uh, doing a uh, WFAA's Sunday morning politics show, uh, uh, pre-recording it, and and Bud Kennedy uh, from up in your hometown, Fort Worth, was was showing me a little John Cornyn lanyard that people had handed out at the um, the state convention this weekend and was saying that there were people from Empower Texans trying to kind of 
grab those from people, take them so that they wouldn't be showing support for Cornyn at this convention. Do you think that this is a risky move by him to be to, to be supporting this legislation? I think within the state of Texas, five years is a very long time. Additionally, he has beaten back primaries very easily. Um, he, uh, he actually boosted his Republican primary margins from 2014 to 2020. So I, I'm reluctant to really make an assumption based on what could look like it could look like in five years. But I, I do think that there's, you know, questions about what he would, uh, if he could, if this is the kind of thing, depending on whenever this McConnell moves on, which is not anytime soon, um, this might come back to be a problem for him, but he's been emphatic. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's, he enjoys being a Senator and he wants to do something with his position. So, um, I, you know, he knows what he's doing, uh, in taking on that risk, but it, it is going to be a very interesting and, and the, the people generally considered his rivals within the Republican conference for, to be a leader someday are not really touching this with a 10 foot pole. So I think you can see that. So it, it, what will be, I think what will be the interesting part to watch is how many, if this gets passed, how many Republicans he brings along. He needs nine other Republicans, but he in an interview with me was very open about wanting to bring a lot more because in his worldview, if there are more Republicans supporting this, there will be fewer targets. And the way you get more Republicans to support this is to narrow it down and make it as conservative, uh, as palatable to conservatives as possible. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you could kind of see this in some ways as an attempt to, you know, bring about some some good policy, but also to provide Republicans cover for the argument that they're not doing enough or anything uh, in the response to this Uvalde shooting. And it is interesting to see, you know, so many folks in Texas in, in that grassroots opposed to that idea. Okay, let's, let's pause for a moment to hear from our sponsors. The Beer Alliance of Texas. Texas allows three-tier compliant ordering platforms for home delivery of alcoholic beverages, ensuring safe and quality products for consumers. Visit beeralliance.com to learn more. And Educate Texas stimulates creative solutions to key educational challenges throughout the state. Learn more at edtx.org. Over the last two presidential cycles, True the Vote has raised millions in donations with claims that it has discovered tide-turning voter fraud. It promised to release its evidence. It never has. Instead, the Texas-based nonprofit organization has engaged in a series of questionable transactions that sent more than $1 million combined to its founder, a longtime board member romantically linked to the founder and the group's general counsel. Cassandra, that is the lead to your excellent investigation into True the Vote that ran um, earlier this month. And it raised a lot of questions about the spending around this, this group, this Texas-based nonprofit group. Uh, I wanna talk a lot about those questions, but first, I want you to tell me a little bit about True the Vote and what their role has been in you know, Texas and national politics over the last few years. So True the Vote has uh, pretty unique roots to Southeast Texas, particularly the Houston area. Uh, folks at the Texas Tribune would likely be really familiar with the organization because you guys were some of the first really following what Catherine Engelbrick was doing back uh, as early as 2009 um, with an organization called King Street Patriots, which ultimately uh, spun off and became 
what is now True the Vote. And True the Vote, while a lot of people may not have heard about it nationally, here in Texas, Catherine was someone who, back when uh, claiming voter fraud was uh, undermining elections, was kind of seen as fringe uh, in 2009. And this is, you know, from statements from Republicans in, in Ohio, where the organization was engaging in some uh, elector challenges, which is basically challenging someone's uh, status on the voter rolls. And now we see it as an idea that's, I mean, uh, a central part of the Republican ideology. And so it's pretty incredible to see how her influence here in Texas has grown over the last decade and particularly the involvement they had uh, with the 2020 elections and the attempts to overturn the results. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the first time this group kind of came under people's radar was in, uh, you know, of course, we, we hope that everyone read our articles dating back to 2009, but, but it was in 2016 after Donald Trump uh, was elected president but lost the, um, the popular vote uh, by 2.9 million votes. And uh, Greg Phillips, um, kind of the, the partner in this effort, came out and said that he had found evidence that you know, a, a fairly convenient 3 million people had voted illegal in that, illegally in that race. And Donald Trump kind of trumpeted those claims and used it to kind of fight back the idea that he wasn't you know, the, the popular choice for president. That, Cassandra kind of turned into an attempt to fundraise off those claims, right? Can you tell us about what happened there? It sure did. The 2016 election is probably when True the Vote uh, started to get a lot of attention for the claims that originated with its longtime board member, Greg Phillips, who is also a former government official in Texas um, back in the early aughts. And Greg Phillips, when he went on CNN in a live show with Chris Cuomo at the time, as soon as that live hit was finished, it was just minutes later that the former president, Donald Trump, was rooting him on, saying, you know, I look forward to seeing the results. True the vote, uh, as in many ways in the recent years, has a pattern of drumming up a lot of attention and hype, right, about something that they've uncovered that's just earth shattering. And yet, when they say we just need more time, we need more time, basically what happens is they kind of like fall into, you know, the, it, the background disappear, and then it's like, their next thing comes up, which is also what we see them do in 2020. But in 2016, they pushed a $1 million fundraising effort to audit uh, the votes uh, in 2016. And it did not prove to be very successful for them. And they ultimately had to abandon that effort. Uh, they still raised the money. And we still see uh, in 2016, you know, Catherine using some of that money to uh, issue contracts to companies that she's connected to, as well as uh, disclosures around loans that she appears to have taken with donations at that time. So it's a question, right, of like, what attempt, if any, did they actually try to do um, or the initiative that that they claimed they were pushing? Because their tax returns tell a much different and frankly concerning story. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, you, you talk about companies connected to Engelbrecht and, and Phillips collecting nearly $890,000 from True the Vote from 2014 and tw to 2020. I mean, that raises, um, you know, real questions of kind of self-dealing or, um, um, you know, whether there's the proper amount of oversight in the way that money is being spent. Um, tell us a little bit about what they did in 2020 when Trump was, of course, you know, even more aggressive in raising doubts of the results of the election. In 2020, what we saw True the Vote do was, uh, it was actually something that appears to have been an idea from their general counsel, James Buck Jr., who is uh, in the conservative legal world, like a huge heavyweight, right, with his uh, work in legal architecture uh, in dismantling abortion rights, campaign finance laws. There are uh, records of communications that we got um, through the Austin County court case that show James Bob Jr. contacting Engelbrick early in the morning on November 5th saying that he had this idea. And shortly after that, they get approached by a donor who was concerned about what he kept hearing of voter uh, irregularities happening. And he wanted to figure out, okay, well, what can we do to actually investigate that? And that's Fred Eshelman, who is a major conservative donor. And Eshelman ends up donating a total of $2.5 million to their efforts, which was, uh, multi-pronged. Basically, they were going to contract with a company called Opset Group to analyze data to prove the voter fraud, except they never even got the necessary data to be able to do such a, a, a audit. And they claimed they were going to file seven lawsuits challenging the election results in seven key states. And within less than two weeks, all of it falls apart in an incredible way. And it's because they did not have, you know, any legitimate reason to challenge these cases in court. Uh, ultimately, the general counsel, James Bob Jr., he uh, dismisses the cases, which actually they only ended up filing four of the seven. And this really upsets Fred Eshelman because he gave so much money <laughs> towards an initiative that then just falls apart. Mm -hmm. And that's the center of, you know, what ultimately became a, a lawsuit in federal and state court. Uh, it's been dismissed in, in both of those courts, but it is on appeal in the state court case. So you spoke to some kind of experts on nonprofit management and oversight about what you've found about this group. What did, what did they tell you? When I talk to nonprofit experts, tax attorneys, they were extremely concerned by the transactions with uh, Catherine Engelbrick as well as the longtime board member, Greg Phillips. Now, one thing uh, that's pretty interesting is that tax law is kind of squishy on this because it does allow for transactions with insiders. However, it has to be like a fair exchange of services at a fair market value. 
And one of the strange things with some of the previous companies owned by Catherine and Greg is that we see them get forfeited by the Secretary of State the same year they're supposed to be getting contracts to do work. And so uh, it's this question, right, of like, what exactly were these companies? What exactly were they doing? They couldn't even keep up their legal compliance with the state, which is slightly concerning. Um, but those were some of the things that we unearthed and our experts said it is something that requires, you know, further examination. I haven't even gotten to the loans, uh, which are highly questionable because of what state law says about a, a director receiving a loan from a nonprofit. Catherine is both a director and an employee, so it's unclear how state law would would uh, fall under the legality of the loans. But again, that's what you know. Oversight offices like Ken Paxton's office or the IRS would have the ability to you know really vet these transactions and see whether or not they were proper. Sure. You you mentioned Ken Paxton's office, the Texas Attorney General, um, but you also say in the story that he has appeared on Engelbrecht's podcast and has been an active supporter of some of their efforts, right? So have you see, heard any indication from the Attorney General's office that they will investigate this? So far, what Ken Paxton's office does know for sure is that a donor has made these allegations in court. Uh, when a charity gets sued, uh, it has the, the attorney general's office gets notified. So they became aware of the allegations that were made against the organization. Uh, I obtained a letter from uh, the AG's office where they're notifying the court, you know, where we've been made aware of this lawsuit, we will determine whether an investigation is warranted. Now, what's happened since that letter, which was from March 2021, is a bit of a mystery. And in many ways, my interactions with uh, the attorney general's office dating back to really February of this year, uh, led to a lot of like contradictory information. At one point, they told me that True the Vote was not a charity, which state records indicated it was very much still an active charity. And so I had to bring this to the attention of that assistant AG who closed my open records request to say, well, wait a minute, hold on, not so fast here. I presented that letter and then suddenly the AG's office says that they misspoke. Uh, and so those were some of those early interactions in this investigation. And then since then, trying to get more answers about you know, what's happened, are they looking into the investigation? It's been just complete silence from the AG's office. Okay, so the, the story is titled, She Helped Create the Big Lie. Records suggest she turned it into a big grift. You can find it on the Texas Tribune or revealnews.org. Congratulations, Cassandra, on an excellent story. Uh, thank you for joining us. And thank, thank you to our producer, Todd. Thank you for our sponsors, Con Resnick, Lone Star College, the Beer Alliance of Texas, and Educate Texas. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you? Do I have to talk to you?